Okay. So we're back again to uh, the three pen- the principal teachings of Buddhism. Uh, other translation of this text is, is called uh, the, the three principles, the three principles, the three principles of the path. Sometimes they would call it that way. You may find translation of it that with that title. Uh, so we are going to go proceed from cover to cover, as we, as we, uh, as I said, we were up to page two, aren't we? We were uh, with Rinpoche talking about. Uh, remember what he did last time? We were we were reading this. <laughs> uh, Rinpoche and his classmates. Uh, Played a trick on uh, on their gurgen, and they they threw what is called a uh, doe arrow. What they call a doe arrow, <laughs> to cause him to choke, not to death, but just to give me, to, to give him and his friends a good laugh. Uh, <coughs> and we talked also about the history of how the Lamrim teachings came into t- Tibet. And now there are very there are so many different Lamrim teachings. There are so many different Lamrim lineages. You have Manjushri's uh, Lamrim lineage. You have Manjushri's. You have Southern Manjushri's Lamrim lineage. You have uh, uh, a Lamrim lineage called Delam, uh, the Path of Ease. You have a Lamrim. Uh, you have uh, 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 and you have also Lamrim lineages within the Kagyu, within the Nyingma. Uh, like the uh, uh, words of my perfect teacher, the, all these are Lamrim teachings. And the reason that they call Lamrim is they take the lamp of the path as the as the uh, as the uh, as the main text, and then they expand upon the themes that are uh, that are talked about in in the text. And that what makes the di- lineages different also is uh, the who they include in the uh, in the lineage of teachers, okay. and some of them make from the very beginning make an emphasis on on tantra. Some of them uh, deal only with sutra, and so forth. Okay. Uh-huh. So, how long does it take? Usually when uh, someone enters the monastery up to the time when they uh, graduate. Remember how many years it takes? 22. Well, com- compromise. <laughs> 25. <laughs> 25 years. It takes about 25 years. And uh, remember what they study? Did I tell you what they study? For the 25 years, what they're mainly studying are five texts. And these texts includes uh, uh, mainly uh, w- w- what you might call wisdom texts. Okay, you, you have uh, perfection of wisdom. You have um, uh, middle way philosophy. You have pramana. All these are uh, you can say the dealing with wisdom. And the vinaya at the very end and abhidhamma uh, towards the later than that. Okay. And right in the very beginning, what they study is not necessarily it's, it's 
it's really a way to get little kids, little uh, little kids, to start in the studying process to get them to know how to think, how to reason, and that's the dura. That's the the collective topics. In there, they learn how to reason, but they don't really learn the real rudiments of reasoning until later. Okay, but but in the beginning, they just get the formality. This is how we debate, you know, uh, with with the gest- hand gestures that they do, how to respond, the 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 key words that are, that are expected in a response and in a questioning, things like that. And it, and, and depending on the monastery, uh, they may spend. Uh, two or three years or some monasteries spend less and so uh, studying just the dura and then they go into deeper understanding of what is logic with logic okay all right so th- that's the 25 years and then they graduate with what is called uh, the geshe degree that's now the geshe degree is not every monastery that is not not every uh, not every monastery gives has this cu- curriculum where you get the Geshe degree, uh, and not every, uh, not all uh, sect of Buddhism of Tibetan Buddhism necessarily have a curriculum where you get some sort of degree at the end. Uh, later on, probably as a res- probably as a response to the uh, uh, to the Gelugpa giving a Geshe degree at the end, uh, the other the other sect started to give out. Uh, uh, degrees, so to speak, at the end of studies, uh, you might encounter someone uh, who with the name Kempo in the beginning of the title. So that that would be like a geshe, equivalent of a geshe for them. But only uh, the Gelugpas in the in the monastic in the in the what you might call the university colleges, the the uh, monastic settings where you, you, there is a, a great emphasis on just understanding the five texts. And while you're, understanding, try, while you're studying the five texts, you also learn other texts that are related to, to those texts, other commentaries that are related to the texts. Uh, and each monastery has its own uh, sort of like a, a textbook writer. Uh, like Jamyang Shewa, for example, is a uh, is a uh, is from uh, Ganden, I think. So each of the monasteries, the, the three main monasteries, have their own uh, te- textbooks writers. And when you're studying your when you're studying those five main texts, you would use the the textbooks that is particular to your own monastery. And sometimes the monastic books have slightly slight differences of interpretation from from other monas- monasteries, yeah. but the, they're all studying Jason Kappa's text and uh, Gyalsabji and Kedubje's text. Okay, uh, we are on page two. I'm going to continue. Uh, so his house was Gyalong, remember? Uh, okay. <laughs> My own house was Gyalong. Remember, you know what the what's how the setting was. Uh, you you have to see it almost like growing almost organically. A bunch of people started to get get together to to build a community, 
and uh, and people were coming from different parts of Tibet, and 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 they had somewhat their own dialect, sometimes their own languages, and uh, they needed some sort of a sense of uh, because they, they they would have it, it took sometimes uh, months to travel from where you from where you live to get to uh, Serra to get to one of those main monasteries. And there was no way you were going to go back home for the summer, for summer vacation or anything like that. That's it. When you, maybe you would, you, uh, during the course of the studies, when there were uh, like long breaks or perhaps once you reach the Parchin section, after you finish Parchin, uh, that's the perfection of wisdom, and you're about to study now uh, uh, the middle way philosophy, Nagarjuna's uh, understanding of perfection of wisdom, perhaps you would take a break, go home, some people would some people would go home visit their families. Some would actually do retreats, so that so that uh, now they are about to study something of of, uh, of deep complexity, and they needed some sort of uh, uh, they needed the right frame of mind to really to get to to be able to understand it. Okay? So they would they would do retreats, and some would just stop right there after. After the study Uma, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't continue any further. They would stop their studies and just either uh, just become what you might call a temple monk. They would just go to a temple somewhere. Sometimes they, they are invited by some community to, to sort of be the keeper of the temple, to do rituals for the community and things like that. Okay. So the geishas are the ones uh, who would have some sort of... Uh, uh, what you might call uh, uh, we have a greater standing in the monastery and then they are the ones who would uh, who would if uh, who would uh, participate in the administration of the monastery and who would uh, uh, make corrections to curriculums if there needs to be and uh, who would become the teachers to the new to the new monks after uh, the new monks who are coming in, and also they would they are the ones who would sometimes be sent out to found a new temple or find find a new monastery somewhere. Okay. Uh, remember how many types of geshe is there? Just three. Hmm? Three. Three. Uh, more than that. Uh, what? <laughs> Anybody for five? Anybody for five? <laughs> uh, you have you have uh, an honorary geshe, which is really which is given to a monk who's been in the monastery for a very long time, probably because they've had uh, uh, other kinds of duties that were before befell them. They didn't really have time to really study, perhaps. Maybe they became the babysitters for the new uh, arriving, uh, the new arriving uh, little kids who are coming in. So they became they had somehow the job of babysitting sort of always fell fell upon them. So they didn't really have time to study. So they ended up just really just teaching those uh, the young ones, teaching them the rules of the monastery, teaching them how to be, behave, and teaching them how to read things like that. Uh, so after doing this for so many years. 
so they, they, uh, maybe 20, 30 years uh, of just doing that. So maybe then they get uh, a geshe degree, get honorary geshe degree. And the geshe degree is given to uh, as a result of different levels of understanding, different levels of study. The geshe degree is, is given after an examination. If the examination is done only within your house, like for example, Rinpoche said his house was Galwon. So you, there's there's a sense of a little, little monastery in each of the in each of the houses. So each house has its own temple. Each house has its own probably even a guardian uh, uh, um, protector, for example. And they, they have their own, and then they do have their own sort of kind of debate with it. when they when they are studying the big the, uh, the big. Uh, there's the big study that they do all together, and then when they go back home to their own houses, they sort of like review, and they have their own sort of like a debate with each other to continue. Uh, the the first level of geshe that you get when you sort of like pass the 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 examination of your own house is one level of geshe. That's the, the that's the very very uh, that's the lowest form of geshe. It's the toklam. And you get it when you after Pachin, not even Uma. Okay. And after that, then there's a Geshe degree that you get where the different, uh, the different man, uh, all the different houses, the different houses test you. Okay. That's a that's a higher one. And uh, there's one where the real Geshe is considered when you when the you're tested by the different the different monasteries, okay. And add the one add the the highest one is uh, not only are you tested by uh, by the different monasteries, but you're also tested by the uh, you have to do your examination in front of the in front of the in front of the Dalai Lama, and uh, you also have to memorize the five texts, okay. The five texts have to be memorized. And that's the, the highest one, that's the Laramba. And it's not so much that uh, while you're studying, you say, okay, I'll, I'll go for the Laramba, and then you study for that. And it's really, uh, uh, as you are progressing, and as you are, uh, if you don't make, if, uh, if you don't rank high enough, forget about studying for the, for, for the Geshe. Even for the for Laramba, even though you're studying the same thing that the Geshe, Laramba Geshe is studying, at the end of, of it, depending on your score, then it is get, it gets to be decided which Geshe you're going to be. Okay. How, I mean, how, how does it score? Uh, the, uh, the, sc- the scoring is done according to uh, every once in a while. There's a there, there are debate uh, uh, quizzes, so to speak. And depending on how you do on those debates. Okay. Right. So there are five, five types? Five types of caches, yeah. The, the testing is entirely done orally? Orally, it's completely orally. For the Lahampa, they've included now a, a written form where you're supposed to write some sort of a. You're given, I think, a topic and you're supposed to write a. a it's like a dissertation on it. Now that has been included, and also uh, bef- before India, I think uh, grammar, 
poetry, these things were not included, but now they are including them in the in the highest uh, for the highest geshe. Because uh, back in Tibet, you didn't you did you did not even need to know how to read to become a geshe. So my own house was Gal was Galong, that's Rinpoche's house. And in the, uh, I mentioned Rinpoche was not from Galong. He was a Lhasa born, and uh, Sarah was in, <laughs> not so far from Lhasa. And the reason that he was put in Galong is because Lhasa was full, <laughs> and Galong had had space. I don't know if you, have, have, you, have you ever heard someone speaking Galong. Oh, it's it's a completely different uh, it's a completely different language, uh, and the interesting about Galong, it looks like it's the original Tibetan, because when you hear them speak, it's almost as if they, if you see uh, Tibetan, it's almost as if they're spelling each letter, like in, instead of uh, like uh, what has become, I don't know. What would it think of? Oh, okay. Uh, Rinpoche, uh, because he spent time in Galwon, so he sort of picked up a few Galwon words, and every once in a while he would make fun of Galwon. <laughs> no, the Lhasa, no, they speak part. Lhasa, Lhasa form of, of Tibetan is, is the form that is you know, sort of like a, when you're learning Tibetan, that's, that's what you usually learn. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> like like ni ni for example is num- number two ni because it's it's spelled with with a uh, g in the front of it uh, like a prefix g and uh, it the gawang is gnis so they yeah so they, they pronounce almost all the letters gnis. <laughs> Uh, so my own house was Gaolong, which was one of the larger, about 15 houses in Serame, itself one of the three great divisions of Sera Monastery. At its peak, Sera had over 8,000 teachers and, his, and disciples studying the ancient books of Buddhist wisdom. I think that was the last thing we read. Hmm. Now... Okay, yeah. Uh, now, the th- uh, he said there are three great divisions of Sarah. Remember, Sarah is one of the uh, the, the three great three main monasteries of the of the Gelupas, and the the three main because that's where you act. It's from these three main you get your Geshe degree. And uh, the other monast- the other Gelupa monasteries, they may study the curriculum, but they don't they don't give Geshe degrees. To get a Geshe degree, you have to get get to go to one of these monasteries, or at least be examined at one of these monasteries. Uh, and each monastery is sort of like divided into like um, almost like I don't know, can't really say three main divisions. I don't know uh, what you might call it. College, maybe college, three colleges. You have Sarah May, Sarah J, and then there's another Sarah. There was another one which was devoted to tantric studies. 
and after they left uh, uh, China, when they got to to India, uh, that part uh, that part of that, that part of the cell wasn't uh, transplanted. But the interesting thing is that uh, for all the main monastic uh, college, uh, most monastic, to call it now, we have Sera, Jepung, Ganden, okay, the three main main seats. They don't study tantra intensely in those monasteries. They go to a different monastery to study. When they, when once they finish a 25-year study to get the Geshe degree, then they go to a tantric monastery to study the study tantra. And depending, uh, they might spend another three or four years studying Tantra. And that's where they learn to make mandalas, learn to do the artwork, learn, learn to uh, uh, do rituals, learn to play the instruments. And of course, they study the, the Tantras. This has always confused me, however, mm-hmm. because um, from what I understand, even though they're not studying Tantra at a Tantra college, but mm-hmm. when they're going through their 25 years in the monastery, they can practice. They do certain practices that are tantric practices. So they're getting, they're receiving tantric initiations, mm-hmm. but not studying. It. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're receiving tantric initiations. They may have some sort of a uh, instruction on that particular initiation that they receive. Right. But as for an ob- overall understanding of tantra, they don't get it until they get to the tantric colleges. So it's not part of the curriculum at all. It's just something that some some teacher would be yeah. giving, and then they would attend. It's, it's like a what would you call that? Uh, Almost, like, I'm afraid to call it extracurricular. What's <laughs> well, like what we would do mm-hmm. supposed to, to, to go to an initiation? It's like an elective. Yeah. Almost like an, like an elective. Right. Yeah. Uh, while you're studying the main thing, and then a, a visiting teacher might come by, and he might be giving an empowerment, and then you might take the empowerment. Yeah. And that would be, and then that's how, I mean, from the very beginning, when you're sitting down in the assembly and you're reciting prayers, the prayers you're reciting are tantric prayers. Yeah. There, are, there aren't really. I don't think. Are there any sutra prayers? I mean, there might be some, like the uh, Jocho, for example. It might kind of be considered uh, a, a sutra prayer, but it has it has tantric elements in, element uh, involved. Almost, if not all, of the prayers are tantric. Almost all of them are tantric. And when you're in the monastery doing your your morning prayers in the assembly, the prayers you're doing, you're doing yamantaka, you're doing things like that. They're all tantric. But at that time, it's interesting that before you go to before you get to the tantric college, you may have memorized the the, the yamantaka prayer already just by sitting in the assembly every day and reciting it. Um, and for the Galupas, the two, there are two main colleges that, uh, uh, where they teach Tantra, Gyutu and Gyume. And I, there are other Tantric colleges, but these are the two main ones. Okay. And only if you were uh, a graduate of Gyume and Gyutu, uh, after receiving your Geshe degree, will you, will, you, will you be eligible to be the abbot of one of the great monasteries. Uh, we young monks were not so noble. <laughs> My house tutor would send us, send up, send us up to the rock cliffs behind the monastery with buckets to fetch water from the spring there, and we would, and we would dwaddle, dwaddle for hours. Sometimes we would tuck up 
tuck our feet tuck our feet into the maroon colored robes and slide down the long boulders until the, cl- the cloth was uh, ripped to shreds and again the housemaster would give us our lumps <laughs> rock throwing was a good way to waste time and I remember once hitting a lizard and killing him by accident and feeling terrible regret for we believe that all living creatures have feelings that they seek to feel good and avoid pain the same way you and I do on our way back to the monastery a favorite trick was to lay out tacks on the path leading into the front gate our country lay in sort of a our country lay in sort of a pocket behind the Himalayas or our uh, I thought he, I thought he meant the lay people I didn't understand it he meant our country lay in sort of a pocket behind the Himalayas our country Tibet <laughs> and was not as cold as most people imagine the land of snows should be actually there's a, a part of Tibet which is kind of quite warm Lhasa is warm in the winter mm-hmm. I, I, I researched this it's like mm-hmm. 40s every day 40 to 50 every day it doesn't get below freezing right? yeah yeah. In January. And when we think of when we think of uh, uh, Tibet, we think of the, uh, you know you have to be wearing you know like a down coat in the summer. <laughs> okay. And it's actually uh, I saw uh, a friend of mine. There's there's a in the Potala Palace. There's a, actually a, a university there, and monks actually uh, uh, are taught. Go to some curriculum in the in the Patala, and he was a monk who studied at the Patala. Uh, he said uh, he, he he visited a place and he gave me a video of a place. Uh, it's always green, and it's like it's it's gorgeous. You wouldn't believe it. Where's that? Uh, you know, Bhutan sport? What was that? Is it near the Bhutan Bhutanese sport? I think that's the. I don't remember where it was, but uh, I just you just showed me the the. Somewhere, somewhere in the south, southern part. Because yeah. yeah. some of the monks enjoyed going barefoot, and we would stoop behind the wall near the gate, waiting for a victim. <laughs> our giggles would start breaking out even before his feet his feet uh, reached the tacks, and then we would race away, robes flapping and flying in the wind, before he could come and catch us. Even at home, I was not the model student. My house tutor, the one who usually teaches us reading and writing before we begin our formal philosophical studies, was Geshe Tukten Namdul. He was very strict with me and the other boy who shared our rooms. This boy was a notorious goof-off and started to affect me too. As we entered our first courses in Buddhist logic and debate, I went through all the notions, all the motions, I gave my exams well, memorized what I was supposed to, and quickly grasped the principles of reasoning. But my heart wasn't in it. By the time we began the next course, 12 long years on the meaning of wisdom, I had gained a rather bad reputation. Around this time, my house tutor was offered the abbotship of a monastery named Ganden Shedrup Ling in the district of Loka, 
fairly far south of the capital. It was a great honor, for the position had been granted by the Kashak, the High Council of the Tibetan Government, and approved personally by the Dalai Lama, who is the great spiritual and temporal leader of our land. The post would bring with it a substantial income, which I, as Geshe Namdral right-hand man, would share. Everyone thought this would be a good chance for me to get ahead and also bow out gracefully from the tough course of study that lay before me, and which it seemed I might never complete. <laughs> it was at this time that the glorious Pabonka Rinpoche, the author of the commentary you are about to read, that I'm about to read to you, <laughs> came into my life. Like me, he had a young, he, as a young man, uh, taken his course of studies at the Sera May College of Sera Monastery. In fact, it was from the same house, Gyarwong. Pabonka Rinpoche was born in 1878 at a town called Tsawali in the Yeru Shang district of the state of Tsang, north of Lhasa. His family were of the nobility and owned a modest estate called Chapel Gershi. As a child, he exhibited unusual qualities and in his 70th, seventh year was taken before Sharpa Churche Losang Dorje, uh, one of the leading religious figures of the day. The Lama felt sure that the boy must be a reincarnated saint and even went so far as to examine him to see if he were the rebirth of his own late teacher. He was not, but the sage foretold that if the child were placed in the Garong house of Sarah May College, something wonderful would happen with him in the future. Uh, so you all have some understanding about uh, these are the these are the ones that are called tukus, reincarnations. Okay, a reincarnated saint. There's a difference between being a reincarnated a reincarnation, because we all are reincarnations, and then. Uh, uh, a tulku means really an emanation. Tul uh, is like magic. Ku is a, a body. Tulku is like a, a, an emanated body. So they're not really reincarnations, so to speak. It's not like uh, they're thrown into the wheel of rebirth. They're, they're more emanations in the sense that they've reached the high level already and they've decided to come back. So they've emanated themselves. Okay. So... Uh, because Pabonka Rinpoche, when he was very young, he exhibited such... Uh, because he was in a society that sort of understood that there were these emanations of, of floating around. And, 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 and in, in that society, whenever a child is born, there's always these tests done to see whether or not... or what, Not necessarily tests uh, in, in to a great extent, like a, but you know, they're always... Uh, your, your mother, your father, your, your, everyone around you sort of look at you, ex examine you with, with, uh, to see uh, if you are some great some great emanation if you could be some emanation okay. so uh, when Pabonka Rinpoche was uh, uh, when he was uh, examined it seemed like he, he displayed he could be an emanation so that's why he did the examination to see if he was his own teacher who came back Okay. And, but he, he wasn't that emanation. Uh, so, 
that's when he was sent to Sarah to be to be a monk to see perhaps uh, uh, something might develop later on. So later on, the youngster was found to be the reincarnation of Changya of the Changya line, which included the illustrious scholar Changya Rope Doje. Changya Rope Doje is like the uh, one of the most outstanding uh, commentators on Tantra with, within the Gelupa lineage. He wrote extensively on almost every tantric uh, practice, and he's he's considered to be the authority when you want to do a research on, on a particular tantra. He's the authority that, that gets to uh, to be quoted. And Changya Rupa Doje was the 1717-1786. Okay, so the lamas of this line had done much meaning, much teaching in the regions of the Mongolia in, in China even in the court of the Chinese emperor himself. And the name Changya uh, had very strong Chinese connotations. Already in those days, the Tibetan government and people were sensitive to the pressures put on us by our powerful neighbor to the east. So the name Changya was ruled out. And the boy declared to be Pabonka instead. Pabonka, also known as Paronka, is a large and famous rock formation about three miles walk from our Sera Monastery. The very word Pabong means in our language in a large boulder or a mass of rock. The place is historically very important for Tibetans. For perched on the top of the rock is the place of Sangten Gambo, the 7th century king who made Tibet one of the leading nations of Asia at the time and who helped bring the first Buddhist teachings from it from India. Until Sangsen Gampo's time, the Tibetans had no written language. Uh, you know how t- t- the writing, the Tibetan script, script came into being? No? Yeah. So it, it was because of, of Buddhism that the Tibetans invented a script, a script for the language. Uh, so when the Tibetans were being introduced to uh, to Buddhism, and then they wanted eventually to have those texts in their own language, they didn't have a, they didn't have their own the, the language they didn't have a, a a script for their own language. So King Tongsen Kampo sent uh, what was his name, Chumisambota, to 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 India to learn Sanskrit. And then, and, and after learning Sanskrit, to use it as a model for for uh, for writing Tibetan. So you learn grammar, and that's why Tibetan grammar and Tibetan, especially Tibetan poetry, is very strange for the language, because they are copying almost not almost. I mean, they're literally copying uh, the everything in Sanskrit, in Sanskrit poetry, to fit the to fit Tibetan. And somehow they made a, they, they, they managed a miracle of, of, of somehow being able to do what, what you might say they, what they are doing is Sanskrit poetry in Tibetan. Okay, and uh, that's why uh, Tibetans, uh, the average Tibetan, cannot understand Tibetan poetry. You almost have to be a Sanskrit scholar to understand Tibetan poetry. Uh, 
it, it's not so much uh, that uh, even even the even the language of Tibetan poetry is really uh, it's it, it's really literal Sanskrit. Okay. They take the, they take the Sanskrit word, literally translate it into Tibetan, and and that that becomes uh, what you might call poetic uh, uh, Tibetan. Uh, so the king, who desired the great text of Buddhism to be translated in our language, sent a number of delegations to India with the charge of bringing back a written alphabet. Many of the young men who went died in the terrible rainy heat of the Indian plains and jungles, so different from our high Tibetan plateau. But the minister, Timri Sambota, finally returned. He pro- proceeded to create an alphabet and grammatical system that lasts to this day. And this is the one of the I think one of the beautiful things about uh, about this alphabet that that became uh, the Tibetan alphabet. It really became the Himalayan al- uh, alphabet. You will find this alphabet in uh, in Bhutan. You find this alphabet in the other regions of the Himalayas, and you 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 will see it written, and you you will be able to read it, but it may not make sense to you <laughs> if you're a Tibetan, and. And because of the way it's written, because of the uh, of the grammar, uh, it's it's even though they have different languages and different uh, dialects in Tibet, they all they can all use the same uh, alphabet. They, even even uh, you will give a Tibetan text to somebody in 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 Kham, for example, they'll be able to read it and understand it. But when they when they speak it, if you're from Lhasa, you may not be able to understand what they say. You may not be able to understand what they're saying. But they will all understand it when it's written. This is kind of uh, interesting. Sort of like how when we read Italian, for instance, mm-hmm. the alphabet is the same, but the words are not something else that's going to understand. Like the difference between oh, the, 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 the Roman alphabet is like the Roman alphabet. The, the, the Roman alphabet, you mean? It's used by English, French, yeah, yeah. and. But, but you, you might be able to sound it out, but you really won't understand what you're saying. It, it, it's so, something similar. But uh, it's not so much that they take the alphabet and they rearrange it to fit their own dialect. It's uh, it, it, you know, the same spelling for like Gyarwong, for example. Mm-hmm. You take it to a Lhasa person, it's written, it's, the spelling is the same. Oh. And you take it to someone in Gyarwong and the spelling is the same. But when, when a Gyarwong looks at it and reads it, oh. it sounds different than the person who Lhasa reads it. Yeah. And and the alphabet itself has been taken to uh, places like uh, Bhutan, where they they use the alphabet. So so what what, what is called Tibetan culture or Tibetan uh, uh, writing, Tibetan even Tibetan Buddhism is really Himalayan Buddhism. So everyone in the Himalayan region sort of look to Tibet for 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 language, for, and they also look to Tibet for 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 uh, religion, the the region that they practice over there is really Tibetan Buddhism, some form of Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. I guess you could say inside the Himalayas, outside of the Himalayas, of course it's Sanskrit. Uh, and just like uh, in Sanskrit itself, uh, uh, the the I guess no, the alphabet you could say, it's used for Hindi, it's used for all the different. Languages that you find in India, it's the same looking, looking alphabet. Yeah, for Thai also. Well, 
All the way over there. Uh, it is said that he performed his great, uh, great labor. Oh, the great labor of writing. <laughs> so, what labor was talking about? I completely forgot what we were talking about before. Okay, the labor of writing the alphabet and coming up with an alphabet and coming up with a grammatical system for the no, uh, for Tibet for for Tibetan in that place, the palace of Songs and Gambo atop the cliff of Pabunka. Okay. Uh, something else about the grammar and... Uh, what, uh, if, you, if, you, if you look at uh, the Sanskrit alphabet, the Sanskrit uh, letters, and you put it next to uh, Tibetan, you see how, how Timisambota literally copied the Sanskrit as a model. Uh, it, no, it's Sanskrit, uh, it, but it, it, you could say it's Sanskrit with some modifications. Sanskrit has no punctuation marks whatsoever. And Timi Sambota sort of uh, uh, invented, you could say, punctuation marks. He, he, didn't, he didn't find punctuation marks within Sanskrit. He invented it. That's incredible. Because uh, when you're reading Sanskrit, it's just one row of symbols stuck to each other, and it's stuck to each other by a line, uh, which makes it even worse. Okay. And Timi Sambodak uh, 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 invented uh, punctuation, but not the way we understand punctuation. Punctuation sort of like uh, we have. You could say that we have two kinds of punctuations: a punctuation to to separate words from each other, punctuation, which is the space, which is not really a, a something, and then you have the punctuation which so, uh, so, uh, separates uh, ideas or thoughts from each other, like sentences and came on sentences and phrases. The punctuation that Timisambota invented for Tibetan wasn't that kind. It was merely punctuation to separate syllables from each other. And when you read Tibetan, it's a good thing he did that because it would have been absolutely impossible. It would be worse than Sanskrit. <laughs> because they have double prefixes. We have uh, uh, double uh, su- what you superscribe, head, head letters and bottom letters in one syllable. Okay? <laughs> so if there, if there wasn't this punctuation that tells you, oh, by the way, all these things that you're looking at is just one syllable, you would have sound like a garong or something. Skdrups. <laughs> okay. So he had that to separate the syllables from each other and also not something, not, not the way we understand a sentence per se, but more like to separate major ideas from other major ideas. But that was a shape. Okay. And it could be just one word, or one syllable, and you put a shape. But not, it's, not, it's not a sentence the way we understand it. So, and also there, he has other kinds of punctuation which are more for decoration, to make the writing look pretty. Huh? <laughs> They're actually called decoration punctuations, decoration marks. <laughs> okay. Pabonka uh, Rinpoche uh, was actually the second Pabonka. For it was finally agreed to announce that he had been recognized as the reincarnation of the Kempo, or abbot. Uh, not to, be, not to, get, to get confused, Kempo is, in Tibetan means abbot. It also is the title given to the, to the non-Gilupas uh, 
uh, scholars who have reached a degree they call a Kempo also. Okay, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were addicts. Okay. Uh, that's a long story why they, they, they use the word Kempo, because it's not, it's not like they're wrong. It comes from the Vinaya. Okay. Of a small monastery atop the rock. For this reason, you are sometimes referred to as Pabunka Kentru, or the reincarnation of the abbot of Pabunka. Pabunka Rinpoche's full name, by the way, was, get ready for this, Chabje Pabunka Jetsun Champa Tenzin. <laughs> Not finished. Tinle Gatso Pel Sangbo. <laughs> okay. What was Pabunka's full name? <laughs> Business. <laughs> <laughs> Pabonka Kebje the Kebje is, is a is a honorific. The Pabonka is the like his nickname is Jetsun is is not an honorific and his name was Jampa Tenzentini Gatso Pelsangbo. So all the other ones in the in the beginning, the three were uh, honorifics. Okay. Kebje Pabonka Jetsun and then Jampa Tenzentini Gatso Pelsangbo. Uh, which translates as Lord Protector, the one from Pabonka, the venerable and glorious master whose name is the Loving One, keeper of the Buddha's teaching, ocean of the mighty deeds of the Buddha. <laughs> and. Where did he receive that name? Uh, Did you speak? Upon his uh, uh, what is called the enthronement, when he was recognized as uh, the reincarnation, then he's given the name. So was yeah, very young. He is also popularly known as Dechen Ningbo, which means essence of great bliss. So, so among the Galupas, these are the two names that you were popularly known as: Pabunkarimbeche or Dechen Ningbo. And refers to his uh, mastery of the secret teachings of Buddhism. Which Tibetans feels that it is disrespectful to refer to a great religious leader with what we call his bare name, such as Tsongkhapa or Pabonka. So you have to say J Tsongkhapa, Pabonka Rinpoche. Yes, you have to add the anorific to it. Okay. Now, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You think you're his mother or something to be calling him his bare name? <laughs> But we have, we have tried here to simplify the Tibetan names to help our Western readers. Okay. Pabon Karimpoche's career at Sarah May College was not outstanding. He did finish his Geshe degree, but reached only the Lingse rank, which means that he was examined just at his own monastery. Okay, so you know which one that is, right? Remember, you're examined at your house, you're examined at your monastery, you're examined by the okay. So Ding say only his own monastery. Okay. And did not go on to one of the higher ranks such as Tharampa. The Tharampa level requires an exhausting series of public examinations and debates at different monasteries, culminating in a session before the Dalai Lama and his teachers at the Noble Inca Summer Palace. It was only after his graduation from the Sarah May and the success of his teaching tours 
through the countryside outside the capital that Pabon Karimbache's fame started to spread. Gradually he began to build up a huge following and displayed tremendous abilities as a public teacher. He was not tall, as I remember about my height, and I am only five foot six. But he was broad-chested and seemed to fill the entire teaching throne when he climbed up on it to begin his discourse. His voice was incredibly powerful. On frequent occasion, he would address gatherings of many thousands of people, yet everyone could hear him clearly. In those days in Tibet, we had never heard of microphones or loudspeakers. Part of the trick, of course, was to pack the audience in Tibetan style, cross-legged on the floor with a lama on an elevated platform. Still, the audience would flow out onto the porches of the hall and sit perched above the roof, on the roof, watching through the steeple windows. Pabonga Nguche had an uncanny ability to relate to his audience. And for this reason, he became a teacher for the common men as well as for us monks. Generally speaking, the majority of the Buddha, Buddha's teachings, as we learn them in the monastery, are extremely detailed, deep, and sometimes technical. Moreover, we use rigorous tests or formal logic to analyze them as we move up through our classes. These methods are important for gaining the highest goals of Buddhist practice in a systematic way and for passing these teachings on to others. But they were beyond the abilities and time of many of our Tibetan laymen. The Rinpoche's great accomplishment was that he found a way to attract and lead listeners of every level. So that was what made Pabonka Rinpoche so uh, admired and so made him so popular. And these, I, I, I don't know if Rinpoche, uh, well, when I say Rinpoche now, you're going to get confused. Okay? Because there's Rinpoche, <laughs> there's Rinpoche, and there's Rinpoche. <laughs> Rinpoche is the, the shortest form you can refer to, uh, uh, I guess, your teacher, your somebody who's of a high, uh, who's reached a high ranking level. But Rinpoche is the title given to uh, uh, someone who, who is your teacher, your main teacher is Rinpoche. The person who is not your main teacher, who you call Rinpoche, is someone who was the abbot of uh, one of the one of the three, uh, one of the we say five monasteries. Either you were the abbot of one of the three main monasteries, Sera, Jepung, Ganden, and when once you've uh, uh, finish your duty as a, as a, as an abbot of one of the monasteries. You again, you gain the title Rinpoche. And if you also, if you are the abbot of of uh, one of the tantric monasteries, Gyume and Gyuter, as an ex abbot, you are now a Rinpoche. Okay. But if you are the abbot of some other monastery, you will not necessarily be called uh, uh, a Rinpoche. Okay. And of course, if you are reincarnated. If you're uh, an emanation, you're also referred to as a Rinpoche. So that uh, I think uh, a few people get 
that word confused when they first encounter Buddhism because they keep hearing it, but they don't really see exactly how it fits. But the word itself simply means the precious one. Okay, the precious one. Unofficially, you can use it whatever you consider to be a precious one. <laughs> but officially, these are the official use of the term. Uh, an emanation, like a, a tulku, an emanation lama, or the past abbot of a very famous monastery. His most famous weapon was his humor. Public discourses in Tibet could sometimes go on for 10 hours. And you think your 45 minutes is too much. (laughs) 10 hours or more without a break. (laughs) And only a great saint could keep his attention up for so long. (laughs) Inevitably, part of the audience would start to nod or fall into some reverie. (laughs) Then Pavoka Rinpoche would suddenly relate an amusing story or joke with a useful moral and send his listeners into peals of laughter. This would startle the daydreamers (laughs) and would always... (laughs) And we're always looking around and asking their neighbors to repeat the joke to them. <laughs> uh, I think even now, uh, if, even when it's uh, in, in the monasteries, if, uh, uh, when, when, we, when uh, His Holiness is giving a te- uh, teachings to, um, public teachings to the Tibetans, uh, the 10 hours doesn't go on. We don't do that. We don't do that anymore. And we have breaks. <laughs> Uh, my teacher, uh, this, this, this Rinpoche, my teacher, kept the, kept the uh, tradition for a long time. At the earlier years when Rinpoche was teaching, he would teach for eight hours, none break, without a, without a break. And the first time I sat in one of his teachings, it was the first time I sat on the floor in my life. And it was painful. <laughs> Imagine the first hours being painful. Imagine sitting there for eight hours. And Rinpoche did have mercy on us. He did give us tea break. <laughs> we had tea breaks. And since he would give us tea break, of course, it would be from... We would start teaching at nine o'clock. It would continue until one o'clock. We have tea break, lunch break, and we would go back again from two o'clock, and there was no more break after that. And it would end whenever it felt like it. And he would end at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock. And uh, I didn't live in New Jersey at the time. I had to get on the bus at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, get back, at, get back, get back to Brooklyn. Okay. So I learned how to sit on the floor. Uh, what do you call that? What's that style? Boot camp style. <laughs> uh, And I think uh, this is what this became, I guess, I guess, because of this teaching style, maybe that's the reason why uh, this became the, the trademark of Tibetan teaching style. Always, there's always laughing, always laughter going on. Because the, the teacher knows that uh, after long discourses, 
the audience attention span naturally goes away somewhere, and then people start to fall asleep, and they try to keep it atten- keep their attention by with, with jokes. Uh, w- one of the uh, there's one public te- discourse by uh, uh, Geshe Dage, and it came to be known on the Lamrim came to be known as. Uh, it was uh, translated by uh, what's his name, Alexander Berzin, and uh, ontology. Just from Geshe Dage, it's not No, Yeah, yeah, uh, and a lot of Geshe's. He was the first one in the West <laughs> that, we, that that name came to us. Uh, he gave a beautiful discourse on the Lamrim, and then it came to be known as ontology. Okay. And uh, uh, the language that Alexander Berzin chose to translate, he, he, he wanted to use the same s- style that the Tibetans use. Whereas the Tibetans, uh, when you read, when you read, Eng- when you read uh, uh, Buddhist works in English, you see a lot of foreign words. You see bu- the Sanskrit words, you see the Tibetan words. But when you read uh, Tibetan, Works. You don't see foreign w- words in there. They don't. You don't see Sanskrit. You don't see. I mean, I guess Sanskrit would be what you would be saying. You don't see Sanskrit words. Everything is translated into Tibetan. Sometimes even the the proper names are translated into Tibetan. Like all the all the deities, all the Bodhisattvas' names are translated into Tibetan. But it's it's not it's not Manjushri. You're not going to see Manjushri in uh, in in the, in the Tibetan text. You will see Jambeyang. Translation of Manjushri into Tibetan, but we don't say we don't translate to Manjushri. We just say Manjushri. Okay. Sometimes some uh, some scholars would just use that would use a t- Tibetan word. They would say Jambeyang. Okay, like Chenrezig, for example. Okay. Uh, so Alexander Berzin thought it was just like the Tibetans did. That's what we should be doing. We should be translating everything. So in that uh, one, of, uh, uh, it was supposed to come out in two volumes. When the first volume came out, uh, ontology of well-spoken advice, just the uh, just the teaching itself is just incredible, uh, Lamrim teaching. And I, I, maybe it's, I'm saying it's incredible because from the beginning to the end, you're laughing. All the jokes that are in there. Okay, uh, but the language that Alexander Berzin used is. If you are already familiar with 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 with, with uh, Western translations, it it, it it's, it's somewhat unfamiliar <laughs> because he doesn't say Buddha, he doesn't say Sangha, he translates them into into English. The perfectly enlightened one, the the noble assembly, the what do you use for Dharma? Uh, the 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 holy measures. <laughs> So if you're already familiar with Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and you're looking for Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, you can't see it, you, you get a bit frustrated. Yes, and, and unfortunately, the audience who was receiving his, uh, the text were those who were already familiar with Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and they criticized him a lot. And then he, he didn't come out with the second volume. Okay. But I, I thought it was quite cute. <laughs> And and to actually read it and to read the translation of it, give a, give it a, a, a slightly a, a meaning that you could appreciate. Okay. All right. uh, 
So the effect on, on the audience was striking and immediate. I remember particularly the case of the case of, of uh, Dapen Tsago, a member of the nobility who held a powerful position equivalent to Minister of Defense. Public teachings in Tibet were as much social as religious affairs, and aristocrats would show up in their best finery. I guess it's like, uh, I don't know how it is in, I guess, Catholic Church. I don't know about the other church. Hey, the other church, I remember that we used to take me to the other church. That Sunday affairs was like a, a show to see who was better than the other, socially speaking. Okay. So I guess they're almost the same. No. Who humans are humans. Uh, often it seemed not to, often it seemed not to hear the Dharma, but to put on an appearance. So people would show up, not necessarily to hear the Dharma, but to put on a, to put on an appearance. And you know what kind of appearance it means, right? Not look what I've got, but but more in the sense of look what I've got, and I am, and I am uh, ethical because I'm attending a, a teaching, a Dharma teaching. Not necessarily I hear what the person is saying, but I'm, but you see me here. You can't say that you don't see me here, okay? <laughs> And I look good. (laughs) So one day, this great general marches into the hall, decked out in silk, his long hair flowing in carefully tailored locks. This was considered manly and high fashion in old Tibet. A great ceremonial sword hung from his belt, clinging importantly as he swaggered in. By the end of the first se- section, uh, by the end of the first section of the teaching, he was soon leaving the hall. He was seen leaving the hall quietly, deep in thought. He had wrapped his weapon of war in a cloth to hide it, and was taking it home. Later on, we we could see he had actually trimmed off his warrior locks. And finally, one day, he threw himself before the Rinpoche and asked to be granted the, the special lifetime religious vow for laymen. Now, that's powerful teaching, eh? to be so affected. Therefore, he always followed Pamunkha Rinpoche around to, public, to everywhere public teaching he gave. The Rinpoche had never spent much time at a small monastery atop the Pabonka rock. And this fame... And his fame soon reached such proportion that the Nakpa College of, of that's the name of the college, by the way, that didn't go to uh, India, Nakpa College. Nakpa means uh, tantric, specifically means secret, secret word. And the Nakpa College of Serra Monastery offered him a large retreat complex on the hillside above Pabonka. The name of this hermitage was Tashi Chirling, or Auspicious Spiritual Isle. There were some 60 Buddhist monks in residence there, and as I remember, about 16 personal attendants who helped the Lama with his uh, pressing schedule. Two monk secretaries, a manager for finances, and so on. The Rinpoche would divide his time between his quarters here 
in a small meditation cell built around the mouth of a cave further up the side of the mountain. The cave was known as Tagden and it was here that Pabonka Rinpoche would escape for long periods to do his private practice and meditations. The central chamber had a high vaulted ceiling, so high that the light of a regular torch could not reach, could not reach it. And the darkness seemed to go up forever. At the center of the ceiling, there was an old natural triangle in the rock, which looked exactly like the outer shape of one of the mystic worlds described in our secret teachings. In the, in the corner of this wonderful cave, an underground spring flowed from the rock, and above it was another natural drawing. This one, just, just like the third eye that we see painted on the foreground of one of our female Buddhas. By the way, this third eye you hear about is largely metaphorical. Is giving a joke? Get ready. And stands for the spiritual understanding of one's heart. We believe the cave was home for Dakini, sort of a Buddhist angel, because people often said they saw a wondrous lady come from the cave, but no one had ever seen her enter. And well, it wasn't put here, but when Rinpoche always make fun of the what's the name of that, that? There was this book somehow became very popular, and people actually became religious, became spiritual because of the book. And later on, it was discovered it was completely made up. No, it was it was about Tibet. Oh, the the the, the Mm. It was Lama something. Was it Lama something? I know what you were talking about. He wrote several books. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're all. Um, yeah, and, and he is, he's supposedly describing Tibet and. and then it wasn't Lost Horizon. It was, no, no, no. I know what you're talking about. Roll roll, roll. roll something. Yeah, there's a roll something. He's a, he's a, British, he's a <laughs> British writer and he called himself. But I mean, it, it's nice reading. It's just that uh, Rumpa. That's the Rumpa sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, it's Rumpa something George, but he's the British guy who apparently never left England. <laughs> he made everything up. And he described uh, uh, opening the third eye, and there's yeah. an operation that they do in Tibet where they open your third eye. <laughs> so that's the that's the third eye that Rinpoche was referring to. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of people actually believed it, that, that you could go to Tibet, get this operation, and you have your third eye open, and you will be wise, because your third eye is open. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to try to finish in five minutes. <laughs> in our root text, the... What was I? Oh, what am, I, what am I doing? I'm all the way in the first page. Doesn't look at where I was. <laughs> I've lost where I was. Where was I? Eight. Page eight. 
<laughs> yeah, it was at, in, it was in this private quarters at the Tashi Children Emitage that I met that I first met Pabon Karimbache. He had been away. Now, you remember Rimbache, Rimbache started out saying he was a goof off, right? He was a goof off, and he probably was. And, and an opportunity came to him to to stop his studies and become the secretary of uh, uh, of of this of his teacher who was offered the the position of the of an abbot of a little monastery somewhere. Okay. Did you ever explain why his teacher would have selected him? Even though I know he was a, he was a good student, the teacher saw that potential, mm-hmm. but he was a goof-off, so why would a teacher select someone to be a secretary who liked to goof-off? No, because uh, he was... Uh, he was a goof-off, but he was, he was smart. Right. And also, he is, uh, is, Rinpoche was great at writing. Mm-hmm. Was, he, was, he was the letter-writer for his house, so that's yeah. I guess in a, in a way he was uh, the unofficial secretary for the house. He would write letters for people. Uh, it was in his private quarters at Tashi Chuling, Hermitage, that I first met Pabon Karimbuche. He had been away on an extended teaching tour in Eastern Tibet and just returned. I was still the wild teenager and had been stuck with a distasteful job of Nyerpa for Garwang House. This means I was kind of a quartermaster and had to make sure that was enough firewood and food to keep the house kitchen going for several hundred months. <laughs> Since the Rinpoche was a member of Garwang, we were supposed to send a committee over to the hermitage to welcome him back and present him gifts. As Nyerpa, I was expected to arrange some supplies and help carry them along. In private conversation, Pabon Karimbuche was in the habit of constantly attaching quite right, quite right to everything he said. So I distinctively remember when I came into his presence and he put his hand on my head and he said, quite right, quite right. Now, this one looks like a bright boy. From that day on, I felt as though I had received his blessing and some special power to pursue my studies. In my 18th year, the Rinpoche was requested to come across to our own Sarame College and deliver a discourse on the steps of the path to Buddhahood. He would receive countless requests of the sort, usually from wealthy patrons who hoped to collect some merit for the future life and from monks who wanted to receive the transmission of a particular teaching so they could pass it on to their own followers in the future. The Rinpoche would usually promise to consider the request and then try to satisfy several at one time by delivering a large public discourse. These discourses would be announced months in advance. I mean, it's like a concert. The sponsors would rent a huge assembly hall in one of the major monasteries just outside the capital or reserve one of the great chapels in Lhasa itself. We monks had our regular classes to attend but would sometimes arrange to make the hours walk to Lhasa, no cars in Tibet those days, attend the teaching and walk back quickly before the evening debate session at the monastery, at the monastery park. Mm. 
here. It's, it's uh, what's nice about the forward is that how Rinpoche sort of gets you a little bit into the life of a monk in 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 in, in uh, a Tibetan monk in a monastery. Uh, so when you go to a monastery, you see a bunch of little kids goofing off, uh, you know, probably playing tricks on each other, playing tricks on you. <laughs> So you won't think that you no. Know, some people go go to a monastery with the idealistic idea in their mind. They think that they're going to see uh, a assembly of angels. They're going to see a bunch of people flying, floating. You know, and just kids. You know, studying. And, and and some of them they arrive there. Some of, some of them are forced to be there because they happen to be the second son or the third son, and that's what a third son is supposed to do. Uh, some of them resent being there, and they, they, they and they stick to it anyway because they have to honor their family's uh, wishes. Some of them are there uh, because they beg to be there. Uh, so you, you might you, you might you see all kinds of people there, and some of them are really really saints. Some of them are really not so. You can't really use the word saint yet <laughs> for them. Yes. Uh, now. What Geshe-la is doing, Geshe, our Geshe-dage, what he's doing is uh, is his duty, because he's a member of the is a member of the uh, university of, of the monastery, and he has a, a particular standing in the monastery. He has to be the he has to take on this uh, this uh, this uh, this position of Gigu. Uh, Otherwise, it's almost as if, uh, almost as if he's uh, uh, brushing aside the rule of the monastery, so to speak. Because he's important, he has to do it. <laughs> if he was important, he could, you know, work in the kitchen, you know, feed the monks. So there are these uh, duties that the, the 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 monks have to follow, that they have to be. So since you, uh, he was so he was the it was his turn to be the nyerpa. So there is, it's, it's not like he's the nyerpa for life, but he, uh, he, he it's his duty it's his turn to be the nyerpa for that for that period of time, and then someone else will become the nyerpa. So when a, a monk, if you fo- if a monk follows all the curriculum, all the uh, uh, all the. the I guess the duties of the monastery, uh, the life of the monastery. By the time you graduate, you're supposed to be an all-well-rounded person because uh, they have to cook for each other. So, you, so you get to, you have a chance to be the cook. You have to, you have to uh, clean. You have to uh, also get a chance to be an administrator. You have to get get a chance to learn how to deal with money and and things like that. That's probably why you, you, you see that the Tibetan monks are so, how do you say, independent? Independent? No, not independent. What's that word? Self-sufficient. Yeah. And that's a word that, uh, that Rinpoche also used a lot when he was teaching. And his main, his, he always said his main goal was to make us self-sufficient as far as the Dharma is concerned. Okay.
Now we'll stop here. Mm. So we we'll stop on page ten, right? Remember that page ten. I think there's a point at the end where Rinpoche actually gives the. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Where he gives the actual a list of the curriculum that you go through. What what text you study, what subject you study, and how long you study this one, how you study that one. And of course it varies from monastery to monastery. Some monastery might take seven years to study this subject, others eight years, or the last, things like that. I have a question. Yes. At the ones that are, and you mentioned the Dipina you know, have ways land in these monasteries at young ages, and that some of, there are some of them who are actually resentful. Mm-hmm. Do they have it? Do they, I mean, for the most for most of them they end up uh, no longer being resentful because they sort of see the benefit and they some of them would even uh, at the end say they are thankful that their parents forced them to be there and there are those who don't get get, get off don't uh, probably because maybe they were sent there at much later age and they don't really uh, uh, lose their resentment and they just can't wait for it for an opportunity to leave. Some of them find it impossible to leave because that's all they know. They, they don't know anything else. They can't really, they don't see how they can function outside that kind of life. So they stay in the monastery with their resentment. And, but no, they, they, it's not like they, uh, perhaps they, they, they do end up practicing you know, end up when when they get to their late late late, late age, but when they're young, like twenties, thirties, you know, you can see them. They walk around somewhere with a bitter bitterness to them. It's like they feel like they're stuck, and some of them do leave. Some of them do leave. I mean, when they don't, they can leave any time right up before they're ordained. They're not ordained as a monk until they're like twenty-one or two. Is that mm-hmm. yeah? Is that right? Yeah. So are there a lot that leave when they're 21? Uh, some, some, some of them, uh, before the time comes where they can get their full ordination, yeah. they, they leave before that. I mean, if they get to the point where they're 21, do they generally stay? And if they're going to leave, they usually leave when they're teenagers? Um, yeah, they usually leave around 18, 19, 20, around that age. Yeah, even later. So they'll leave when there's still time, maybe, to start a different career. Yeah, yeah. But they've been educated throughout that, where they might not have received that kind of Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that they do stay, because they're getting this incredible education. Yeah. But it's only recent, like recently, right, in the last 10 or 15 years, that mm-hmm. they've incorporated some modern subjects into the, the monastic education. Subjects which would be useful for yeah. non-monastics yeah, yeah. In, in this world. Uh, within the past maybe 10 years, yeah. Now they, they, they are studying, uh, they have, especially the science, there's a science curriculum now. Just for the, mainly for the young ones.